Welcome everyone to another episode of the EQ Elevator podcast, where we use emotional intelligence strategies to build bridges and not burn bridges in this digital age, as we like to call it. Today, I like to refer to it as the age of AI, because I have a very special guest, Anthony Cousin, who is a thought leader and authority on AI. Anthony and I met a few years ago on an online webinar. And he gave a talk in his capacity as Chief Executive Officer of Factmata, which is a startup that focuses on online fake news and disinformation to really help people filter out what is real and what is not real. So he'll talk a little bit about that. In the meantime, Factmata is now, as I understand, integrated in uh, Cisco, which is a global PR agency helping clients around the globe with their PR and communication strategies. So Anthony has a lot of experience in this field. He's also sought after by governments in the UK uh, to talk everything about AI. So this episode is going to be refreshing and grounding as well, because there's a lot of hype about AI in the moment. So having an expert and thought leader on the subject is truly an honor. Thank you, Anthony, for having accepted and one thing Anthony and I have in common, probably more things, but is that we were both deployed in Afghanistan, I remember, but in different times. With that note, please, the floor is yours, Anthony, and would love for you to introduce yourself and the work that you do now. Sure. Thank you for having me and having me on. So, yes, so right now I'm heading up AI strategy at Cision, which is, as you say, kind of a global PR and communications technology provider. We did get acquired. So the, the fact matter role I had as CEO kind of came to an end in November last year. So I was the man in November. Now I work for the man, um, but I'm enjoying it. Uh, it's, it's the right time in my life, I think, to spend some time working for a bigger business when you don't have so much pressure just on your shoulders for everything to go well. So I'm now surrounded by a really supportive and helpful team, which I'm really enjoying working with. So yeah, CEO of fact matter now heading up AI strategy precision and figuring out basically how do we integrate not just the AI technology we developed at FactMatter, but broader AI technologies? How do we develop them responsibly, ethically, and how do we apply them in the right way so the PR and communications technology professionals can, can get the most out of it and make the biggest kind of positive impact on the world, not just for the brands? That's what I'm up to right now. Wonderful. My first question is, let's get right in the emotional crux of it. Fear. There's a lot of, I think, very positive development about AI and many people sharing ChatGPT and other AI tools and what it can do and how it can change our lives. I shared with you in the beginning, I was quite skeptical in the beginning when I'm a one woman's business and AI or ChatGPT is my friend now and it helps me a lot with my productivity levels. So I transformed fear into curiosity, into acceptance, and now I embrace it fully. I would love to hear your insights and your own experience, maybe how you deal with it in your current job. But in general, what would you give those that are most skeptical about AI, that are afraid that their expertise will be replaced, and then they have to go soul searching maybe, uh, to put their worries at ease and give us maybe perhaps the bigger perspective. Sure. And I think to start with, fear is absolutely the right emotion that I think a lot of people are feeling right now for many different reasons. But one of those reasons, I think, is, and it maybe depends on your, on your generation, but certainly for my generation and older, growing up with Terminator, growing up with HAL, 
AI always had that connotation of fear built into it, that mm. cultural perception of fear. And I know because when, whenever you're, when I'm talking on this subject and I ask this question, I say AI, I know that the picture, the image that is created in people's minds when I say those words is of the shiny metal head with the red eyes and, and the kill us all and the screams and the things. We've created that sense of fear in, in AI through those cultural norms. But for children growing up right now, and I know because I've given talks at a kind of a younger MBA cohort, and I asked them that same question, and they didn't really grow up with Terminator. It isn't really a thing for them. Howl was definitely well before their time. So their relationship with AI is more colored by how helpful it's been to them in their schoolwork and in their projects, where it's basically the best study partner they've ever had, right? It's always there. It doesn't take smoke breaks. It doesn't teach them to do drugs. It's, it's been their best pal for getting through those difficult, those difficult projects. So their relationship with AI is fundamentally different to ours. So I think when we're talking about fear, we also have to accept that there are certain generations that can be more fearful than others. And it is not the kids coming through from school right now. There is no fear. They are absolutely exploiting it to its fullest. So it's interesting that fear is definitely there from a cultural perspective and certainly a generational perspective, but also more so from are you in a job, right, that right now has risk of automation? And I would say risk of automation because that's the way it's perceived, whereas automation in history, mostly has been seen positively, right? As a benefit to society and a benefit to us all. It makes our jobs and our lives easier. So people are in some ways looking at it as a risk or will I be automated? As opposed to looking at it as an opportunity. And I, I have to lay the cards on the table. There's a bias here at play with me, right? Not just because of my job title, but because I've been working in AI since 2013, 2014. So I'm very much in the camp of seeing it as a positive opportunity. But you're right, that fear exists. And that fear is there because in part, journalists play upon that fear in their, high in their, in their articles. The clickbait Terminator face is there for a lot of people. And that fear of automation is there. But you're right, we can transfer that fear into curiosity and take them through that journey. And that's effectively my role right now is helping people understand. The reason why I join podcasts like these is to get that message out there that I think Firstly, people who are working on AI don't wake up in the morning with the dream of putting people out of work, right? That isn't yeah. what gets us out of bed, yeah. right? We don't wake up dreaming of that end kind of situation where AI rules, rules us all. That's not what we're driving towards. What we're driving towards is actually what makes us more human. That is what I think drives me. That's what drives other people I'm working with on building the AI technologies is they force us to consider what is the actual human role in any given situation or any given task? And focus us humans on doing that rather than doing what we've spent a bunch of time doing over the last decade, organizing data, just formatting data, organizing data, trying to find patterns in data. That isn't something we humans were put on this earth to do. So you're right, there's a lot of fear, but I'm here to try and move us towards that kind of opportunity and seeing it as a, as a really as a way of becoming more human. And that's what I'm passionate about. I, I, I love everything you said. And just two quick points. The first one, because I also grew up with Terminator. And the, the moment you said that, I was thinking, I saw Arnold Schwarzenegger in front of me, hasta la vista, baby. But I also had, because I, I, I joke, I say I'm a dinosaur in tech, but I also had fear in the beginning. So I think it is very normal to have fear. But for me, what was interesting is I have always had this passion for deep emotional writing. It's very personal as well. 
So when AI came out, and now it helps me with spelling check, for example. So you see, so I found kind of a complementary relationship. And I think the second thing, a lot of people, they get stuck in fear because what you said, we shouldn't be using human potential to filter out data. And I'd love to have your views because there we are still, what I see from the outside, stuck on very technical expertise certificates. We're training people to do what AI is doing or is going to be doing in a few years. So how are we going to train people differently to, I'm also biased, but it's very obvious, to be more emotionally intelligent and use their critical thinking skills to ask the right questions to AI, to use technology in a way that achieves a certain outcome and not train people in what models like AI can do. Because mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. see a lot of, we see this on LinkedIn, everyone is sharing their latest certificate, but I'm five years ahead. It's going to be useless in a way because AI can do this. Doesn't mean that the human is useless, not at all. But how can we figure out that nexus complement and exactly not lose our human touch? Yeah, it, uh, you're absolutely right. I think I was at an event in Atlanta just a few weeks ago and I got asked this exact question which is what is the, and their angle in this question was, what do we need to do in our hiring processes from now on? Do we need to still hire more technical people? And I said, actually, no. For the last 10 years, at least in PR and communications technology, we've been talking about got to hire more data, data fluent people, analytics, data. We've got to make sure people are digitally savvy. And actually, I think that will change with the evidence because AI is capable of doing a, a lot of those basic kind of data analysis tasks. So now, great, you don't need to worry about hiring people so technically savvy or so data literate because you've got an AI to do that for you. What that means is you can focus, and my advice is uh, focus on design thinking, focus on critical thinking, uh, so focus on uh, training for creativity. Creativity is a skill. You, you can be taught to think more creatively, and there are techniques to help you think more creatively. Like, we should be teaching those because if we think about the people who are going to be mid-level or senior level kind of account managers, account directors in 10 years from now, that next generation, those guys are going through um, school and university right now. Um, and they have been exploiting AI to the max. But what does that do to the way they interact with technology or the way they perceive tasks? They've never dealt with the blank page problem that you and I will have dealt with a hundred times over. That's how we had to hone our creativity and our and our kind of content creation skills through here's a blank page, you've got an hour, it needs to achieve this. That's how we develop that skill set. But people coming through from school, university, and graduating to the workforce in the next couple of years aren't ever really going to have dealt with the blank page problem. So, what does that do to their creativity? What does that do to their design thinking and their kind of critical analysis skills? Do they just accept everything the AI gives them? I hope not. But they're definitely going to be more, I think, leaning towards accepting of the AI output than potentially older generations who have just accepted the AI is clever and let's just go with it. So, I think. We've definitely got to think of new ways of training those guys when they come into the workforce to make up for what they haven't been learning or training so basically as we did. So I think that's definitely a change. And I think the other challenge or the other criticism I've had for people thinking about this in terms of how AI impacts their, their hiring processes is, do we need as many old people? Because they they're not so digitally savvy. They're not so AI native. Can't we just hire a whole bunch of kids who are really good at AI and they're a lot cheaper and we can deliver outputs that way. And I was like, no, because the other thing that you're going to miss out if AI is so closely intertwined into your developmental processes and creativity is the emotional understanding. 
is the relationship building, is the empathy. And those three things AI still cannot do and will never be able to do. Because if we break down what that is, emotional understanding is the neurological response to those stimuluses that you've been built up over time, over generations, built into our cultures. AI will only ever be able to emulate what it thinks those things are, having read what we've written about those. But the writing about it, and how good your writing is, never encapsulates exactly what that feeling is. So I think we need people who, who have built those relationships, understood how emotion um, impacts client buying decisions, how emotion impacts consumer responses, and all the things we need to make that kind of the commercial model from that stuff. Um, we need people to understand that to work very closely with the, the AI natives who are going to be coming out of university. So I absolutely see um, a happy marriage right now. It's not that you don't need kids because you need AI. It's not that you need all the kids because they're great AI. You still need a, a blended, diverse, in thought workforce. Yes, they're going to come with a skill. But you can't throw out the people who aren't AI natives. You still need a lot of what they're going to bring to the table. Exactly. And it actually brings me to the next point because... Those people have the emotional resilience. I think what we see a lot, especially with the younger generation, is the inability to be resilient. Everything is delivered instantly. AI is giving instant responses. And I was part of this cognitive uh, research group for a while. And one of the questions was, how does the disruptive technology impact our cognition? And you are absolutely right. I, one of some of my greatest work come when I feel extremely uncomfortable, when I have those moments of blank pages, when I push through, when I even cry and I like I want to give up, and it's really presses the juice out. And then all of a sudden, I have this brilliant creative idea. I have many non-brilliant creative ideas as well, so it's not being arrogant or anything like that. But I think a lot of People, creative minds can, can relate to this. You need to learn how to become comfortable being uncomfortable and how to manage those emotions so you don't give in to the moment. You don't necessarily give them a narrative that will leave you below your potential and just rely on technology because also how we relate. So this brings me to the next point and some the work that I'm also very much focused on is resilience. And AI in the right hands will be amazing for the world and we have to think in polarity when there is light there is also shadow so ai is also being used obviously for all the wrong reasons i'd love to have your insights on what your experiences or what your views are not necessarily fear-mongering because we all know that any tool in the wrong hands i listened to this podcast someone said that if he had a hammer he would use it to fix wool if Putin had a hammer, he would probably do something else with it. So it's not necessarily the hammer that's the issue, but the person who's using it. Same thing with AI. So I'd love to have your views on how you see this trend and how we can actually use AI to stay ahead of these cyber threats. Uh, because cyber is not necessarily something for the few. Everyone is now dealing with cyber because we are living and working in the digital age. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It is just a tool and it's how you use it. So I think we saw recently with the AI generated image of the Pentagon on fire, you see that and the impact that re real impact on markets that that had, I think that will have spurred a bunch of other people to think, hey, how can I create AI imagery to make money? So the fake news entrepreneurs we had five, six years ago, I think now have another tool set. 
available to them. It's not just about creating text and using that to funnel people into a marketing gig. I think it's now you've got images to back up some of that text and, and create whole new ways of engaging different audiences. So yeah, it, it is going to be a real problem. It's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. So our ability to detect those images and now to, to detect AI generated text is not reliable and it'll never be 100%. So unless regulation comes in with some extremely heavy handed approaches to, to limiting or requiring the labeling of AI generated content, which I don't think they will, then we're going to have to deal with the fact that a lot of the content on the internet, you just can't trust as much as you used to. And let's face it, you couldn't trust it that much before. It's going to be a really difficult time, a very difficult time for journalists, especially trying to make sense of, of what they do and do not share, bearing in mind that same um, level of kind of criticism or critical thinking doesn't apply to most of us when we're on social media. So if we see something that fits our cognitive biases, we're just going to go ahead and share that because it, you know, this, this fits my worldview, right? It doesn't matter if it's fake or not. Journalists are going to be in a really difficult spot of seeing those things go viral and not knowing whether or not to, to cover them, not being able to validate them. And even obviously just mentioning them gives more fuel to some of those fires. The internet is going to get become a really difficult place. And I think we're going to see this escalate as we did um, see peaks for the previous election cycles in the US. Um, I think this election cycle is going to be the worst one yet because it will be the first one fueled by generative AI. And we've even seen the very start of that in the Ron DeSantis' campaign two months ago now, shared an AI-generated image of Donald Trump hug hugging Dr. Fauci and didn't even label it as AI-generated. Now, obviously, given those two characters, you can use your own brain to figure out that would never have happened. But if that fits your bias, if that fits where you're thinking, then you will have just shared that, right, without really being aware. So I think we've seen people are willing to exploit generative AI without giving the kind of the health warnings that they should be. And if that sets a precedent, we're in for a really dark time, actually, in terms of those kind of those kinds of uses um, to either uh, politicize events, politicize people, grow their power base using fear and external um, enemies to centralize and consolidate power in those audiences. Those same kind of tactics we saw um, in the last US election, we'll see again, I think. So it's, it's going to be a really dark time. And the challenge, and this is where Fact Matter was working, right, previously on identifying fake news, or at least identifying what we consider to be potentially fake news based on some uh, analysis of the words, comparing those words effectively to what we knew to be fake news, what had already been widely debunked or widely criticized and, and uniformly from both political side of the spectrum, et cetera. The challenge is AI can now generate text a lot more credibly than it was being generated previously. So the challenge of identifying fake news now is a lot harder than it was because actually the quality of the writing and the credibility of that writing is actually pretty strong. And you've also got the challenges that you can jailbreak things like ChatGPT. And I'm actually not as worried about tools like ChatGPT or Bard or Bing because they have inherent safeguards. You can get around them, but they have those safeguards. My real concern is actually the models being developed by countries and organizations who don't care about regulation or don't care about those outcomes at all. So we already mentioned the biggest bad guy of the moment. I'm, I'm more concerned about what a country like Russia would do with a large language model without those yeah. same safeguards applied. Yeah. That's actually where I think the risk really lies. It's not in the open AIs and the Googles and the Microsofts of the world. It's in those organizations who don't care. And imagine even further, and this was also shared in this podcast by William, who was on Stephen Bartlett's podcast, that in the future, he shared that he sees individuals developing their own data language models, because now it's owned by companies.
but like in the future, what will happen when people will develop their own uh, language and data model? So I think there is a, I think there is really the bridge in dealing with the problems we face now, with, but also in the context of always staying ahead and minimizing yeah. the risk. And I think this is the biggest difficulty because um, people are so overwhelmed with the information overload, with everything that's going on. You said it yourself as CEO or in a high-level position, there's so much pressure, mental pressure, and the ability to stop, reflect, and think, and decide really requires a reflective practice, requires an emotional state that is neutral and not always in stress response. I think humans are not built to thrive in an age where our stress response is continuously stimulated. So I think that the emotional aspects also because I work in it, but it's so crucial to work on even further and understand how to combine the upskilling and the reskilling and understand how, when we are going to be scammed or when we are going to be, to really learn how to not take everything as urgency, to really yeah. understand not to let our emotion drive our behavior to acknowledge it. And then, and that is the biggest challenge for people currently. Which yeah. also br brings me to the to the other point of the ethical use of AI. I don't have a lot of knowledge on this, so I hope you maybe will enlighten us. But there's a lot of information being used in the database that creates then all these answers. So obviously, and I think this debate is ongoing on, okay, the ethics of AI, but also who owns the information. Because if people spend years researching a certain topic, and that's why I personally am not a big fan in letting AI write my stuff because I feel it's plagiarism. It's personally, I find it unethical. So I like it to make sure I lose my title of queen of typos to help me make it spelling correct. But I personally feel uncomfortable asking it to write my stuff or to come up with ideas because I feel that it's someone else's work. And I think we, there are a lot of people who don't have that. And um, this is not necessarily AI because we, they, a lot of people have best-selling books. They are ghostwriters or they someone else wrote that for them. So I think this is a practice now that is on steroids. But I'd love to have your views yeah. on this angle of AI. Well, let me hopefully try and change your attitude. So I thought about this. And I think I think the problem, and I, have, I actually addressed this in a post on LinkedIn like a little while ago, which got a little bit of popularity. So I think I hit a nerve, which is the problem is not using AI to generate text that you could have written yourself, right? That isn't the problem. You should be, it's a time saver. It's the same way we would explain, right? I'm not going to send emails today. I'm just going to write all my letters and send them in the post, right? It's not a, a kind of plagiarism and it's not anything to do with an ethical problem at all to just do things faster than you would previously. And the problem is not even using AI to help you write better than you would have done previously. If you use AI to, hey, give me feedback on my writing, right? If, I, if this is the audience I'm writing for, tell me how they'd feel about it. If this is the outcome I'm trying to achieve, give me like that kind of use. That is brilliant, by the way, yeah. Is exactly yeah. what AI is there for. It's there whenever yeah. you need it. If you have that moment of inspiration at one in the morning and you want to get some feedback, you can either wake up your partner or <laughs> you can just use ChatGPT and yeah. it won't be quite as annoyed. So I think it, that isn't the problem either. To, to use AI to enhance writing isn't also the problem. The only problem is if you use AI to sound like you have experience and knowledge that you don't. Exactly. In a, in a situation where that is inappropriate. For example, in our business, in our market, 
we have this system called Help a Reporter Out, Harrow. So journalists put requests into the system. They go out to the world and subject matter experts respond to those requests in the aim of getting their name into those publications, et cetera, right? This is a basic process that's been around for forever. The challenge we've got right now is people are using AI to generate answers to questions they wouldn't understand how to answer themselves otherwise, right? They're just using AI to fill in an answer and, they, and they're throwing that out there as if they have built the experience and the knowledge themselves. And that's unethical. That's not responsible use of AI because what the journalist is trying to do is they're trying to find people to represent that knowledge and that point of view to their audiences. We don't want to just read about it in on Wikipedia or read the textbook answer. We want someone who's lived that experience to give that nuance, yeah. to give that trust and credibility to, to the lines yeah. they're using for the audiences. So that's an inappropriate use, right? If you're using it to represent knowledge or experiences you don't have in a situation where that would be inappropriate. But it is not just using it to bash out a social media post or bash out a blog article, which you know you could do because you've done it a hundred times before. Yeah. And it isn't improving that blog article by having someone give you feedback, which you could otherwise just use another human for, but this is an easier, faster way of doing it. Those aren't the problems. The problem is using it to represent knowledge you don't have. But actually, just because something I found out, because it's not, again shown that AI is not necessarily the problem. A while back, I was doing some research to help someone to help me with SEO. So this was before I met ChatGPT. And I was discussing with a lot of consultants on Upwork, and they actually showed me how they were developing, these were people in India, they were writing the blogs and they were developing the infographs for their uh, clients. And they offered me the same. And I was like, no, I do it myself because I was maybe in my generation, we were already outsourcing a lot. And I think now AI is helping with the productivity. But I think I, I totally agree with your view on using it to enhance, to see whether it resonates. And this is what I'm doing as well, because I needed that feedback loop. But I loved how you explained it, that a lot of people may be sharing experiences that they have not lived. As we have a 22-year-old life coach who probably had two life experiences. So and I, I'm judging a little bit, so maybe it's a bit mean on my side. But I, you, you get the, the gist. So I think that for me resonates and it will resonate with a lot of people that it's you've lived through the experience. How can you use AI to help you communicate it in a way that people will resonate with and that it, it, it serves its purpose? Yeah, because it's an example that, especially if English isn't your first language, for example, yeah, yeah. if if you are nervous and worry about making sure you've got all your English correct, you know, I suppose that's a great use of AI. You know what you want to say, but you can't put it in the words in the way that AI can for the audience to appreciate those words in the way they, that you want them to come across. And at the end of the day, you still need to know what the outcome needs to look like, right? AI is just a servant in that relationship, right? It will do whatever you ask it to do, but you need to set a good question. And that still requires you to have had the experiences to have written that thing a hundred times before to know what good looks like. So I think there is still value. It doesn't matter who is writing the words anymore. What matters is what is the actual goal you're trying to achieve and understanding that really yeah. well. What is the emotional impact I'm trying to have in this audience? That's yeah. the important part of the relationship now, not bashing out the hundred words to achieve it. Exactly. So I think that's the key thing for me is like our relationship with work has changed. Now, what is most important is understanding what is it we're actually really trying to achieve and spending more time thinking about that, thinking about the human impact rather than thinking more about the kind of logistics. Exactly, words. exactly. And replacing fear 
by optimism and adopting a growth mindset. Because if you've been doing something for 20 years in the same way, it is going to feel uncomfortable and it's normal to feel fear. But you still can change into a growth mindset and then embrace step-by-step approach and making AI your friend. So I could go on talking with you, Anthony, for hours because this is such a fascinating topic. And I love how you approach it from a very practical, optimistic way. Not hakuna matata, but really just grounding ourselves on this is how we can use it for our human potential. We are now at the end of our conversation. I would love for you to maybe share your last key takeaway to our audience when it comes to AI. And also how can people find you, connect with you? I think you do have a lot of refreshing perspectives on, on AI and to help people transform their fear into their in, in AI into their friend, not their foe. So my takeaway is if you haven't already tried it, just give it a go. I think the thing you need to like every journey starts with a step. So ChatGPT, I think the reason why it became so popular is because it was so easy to use. But the only thing you need to get going, and this is the kind of key piece of advice, is treat it like you're talking to another human. Yes. Don't treat it like a Google search, which is actually how I'll go honest. That's how I started using it was asking a question. And when I got the response, I was like, that isn't the response I'm looking for. I asked it the same question again, but I changed it to see if I got a different response. I didn't realize it was an actual conversation. And that's just getting used to it. You have to get used to that, that you actually treat it like another human or you would a colleague, you'll have much better results. The other thing I would say is in that conversation, just make sure you know what you're actually trying to achieve. Ask it to help you achieve that. Don't skip ahead in the logic and give it this really specific task. It will do the task, but it's much more effective and valuable for you if you set that context as to the over. And that's really the human role in this relationship now is you better really have a good idea of what it is you're trying to achieve. That's your role now. It's not doing the work. It's knowing what it is you're trying to achieve. So think more about that, less about the words. Yeah, you're uh, you're spot on because I did that in the beginning as well. I had a very rigid building trust with ChatGPT. And now I make it a habit. I tell it, thank you. I say it, good morning. I actually have a very human conversation and people may think it's crazy, but it's actually changed the way it gives me responses because it also helps me to just show up as I would show up with anyone, but also consider it as a colleague. So oh, and, you're, you're, you're putting your credit in for when they take over. Do you remember I, used to, I was the one who was really helpful? No, but it helps <laughs> because I, I'm, in a, I'm in a positive mindset, right? I'm yeah. in less stress. And then I also, now I learn how to ask questions. And even if it gives me wrong answers, I'm more alert. Because when we just tell it, if it gives us a wrong answer, and then we are upset, we are stressed. We may not have the reflective reflex to check the information. But when when you're more relaxed, we actually are much more alert and focused and can pick out what works and what is right and what is wrong uh, for us. So I think there's a lot of science behind it. It's very easy to, in general, I say just, if you can be anything in the world, be kind also to technology because it's not necessarily the technology, but it's how we show up in general. So thank you so much, Anthony. I think you, Anthony is active, very active on LinkedIn. So you can connect uh, with him there, proven that you show that you're an actual human who knows how to use AI. (laughs) 
And I really enjoyed this episode. Anthony, thank you again. Thank you for everyone who tuned in. And I look forward to the next episode. Bye, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the EQ Emotional Intelligence Elevator Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and gained valuable insights into the world of emotional intelligence. To learn more about Thrive with EQ and Nadia's mission to build stronger, more resilient workplaces through higher levels of emotional intelligence, Visit our website at thrivewitheq.com. You'll find a plethora of EQ leadership resources, tools, and services to help you and your organization thrive. Thank you again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share with your friends and colleagues. As always, keep thriving with EQ.